Hartsville, Hartsville, the happening town where art abounds. Hartsville, Hartsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Hartsville, Hartsville, feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Hartsville from Asheville. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Artsville, the podcast that celebrates. American Contemporary Arts and Crafts from Asheville and Beyond. I'm your faithful host, Sourdough, a.k.a. Scott Power, and I am here with my tireless and trusty partner in crime, Louise Glickman. Hey, Louise. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm a little beat up from the weekend. It was an action-packed weekend with the kids. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great, and Daryl and I have had action-packed days climbing out in the Blue Ridge, hiking and going through some kind of cold water and walking over rocks, because this is the time of year for the leaf peepers, and I am one of them. Asheville is glorious with color right now. It's everywhere. It's a little early this year, but we're going to take advantage of it every free minute we get. Yeah, because the leaves aren't with you long, right? I mean, it'll be winter's upon us, and certainly, maybe even by the time this podcast airs, you you might be uh, you might be leafless. Your trees might be naked, but right now, as we record this, uh, they are just gorgeous, aren't they? Yeah, we're having a good time here this time of year, and it's interesting because Judy Jetson with Local Cloth is who we've just finished interviewing, and she is bringing to Artsville starting November fifth some absolutely glorious textiles, including some things that are warm. So I'm looking at her scarves already. They're just beautiful. They're knitted things and they're lightweight things too, silks and and that kind of thing. But I need myself one of the local cloth scarves. I need a new wool scarf. Well, I tell you what, you're about to learn where to get one because our guest today, <laughs> Judy Jetson, I mean, this woman is what a what a powerhouse uh, she is. Well, she is not only a powerhouse, but she has become a real friend. And last January, when we first opened the gallery, well, actually just before Christmas last year, I thought I knew all kinds of things about team building among artists and building community and all of that kind of thing. But she has been a model for me and a mentor for me, watching what she's done with local cloth. And I've actually started taking classes there and I've started going there to shop. She is the most generous person, teacher, friend, very down to earth, and her message is really remarkable. We both started in economic development, and when we show artists how to take a step up, you know, knitting at home or even painting at home to showing at galleries, 
we're dedicated to exactly the same thing as you are, Scott, emerging artists. Indeed, indeed. Well, in Judy's, her journey and her life's work and what she's doing with local cloth is truly remarkable on on a lot of different levels. But she brings that sense of, you mentioned your common experience in economic development. I mean, she is very unique in, in, in so far as that, you know, obviously she's an artist and she can make art, but she has that kind of professional experience and expertise around economic development. So marrying the art and the science, the business and the art, the combining best business practices with best art making, or in, in this case, uh, cloth making, fabric making, combining these things, it sort of has created a uh, an exponential opportunity and as she's developed this kind of vertical supply chain from from harp growing and harvesting fiber all the way to you know making the products and selling the products well i i call it from sheep to show because basically <laughs> great name by the way from sheep to show so she goes out there and talks with the farmers and really looks at the sheep at the earliest stages, feels feels the fiber, she spins it into yarn. That's kind of where she started and what she's known for. And then she's found the artist, she's found and utilized the work of students and schools in our area. And now she has these blankets that ultimately will be distributed to retailers around the country and all of us who are listening to this podcast will be able to buy one. I've seen a sample. They're absolutely amazing. So this was her dream, and she's been building it patiently over 10 years, and she really has accomplished a great deal. So speaking of building things, we should point out to our listeners that the first few minutes of this episode is a little bit annoying because they're building yet again another new construction project, and they happen to be building it sort of right outside Judy's office. And so the first few minutes uh, of this interview, we have a lot of banging and, and noise going on, construction site kind of noise. And so we just want to tell our, our listeners to hang in there because at about minute 10, I think we actually pivot into a new space that's quiet and Judy can think and speak and we can hear her without all the banging. So, you know, our faithful fans and friends listening today, please hang in there. The first few minutes is a little bit tough because of the, the banging of the construction. You guys in Asheville know it all too well. But about minute 10 gets nice and quiet and uh, we, we move away from that, uh, all that noisy construction site. So just, you know, be patient with us. We'll, <laughs> we'll get there. I think that's a good point. Uh, they're building a, yet another hotel. And, you know, once the construction is finished, the noise will continue in the form of cars and traffic. So <laughs> you have that. But that's what success brings. And it's, it's, it's what Kate Pett talked about when we did the Thrive interview. And we're all learning to adjust to this as we grow. And Asheville is growing. Well, and with people thinking about this and working on these topics, such as yourself, and obviously such as people like Judy Jetson, this is all going to get sorted. I know it's it's a challenging 
progress, so-called progress is a, is a double-edged sword sometimes. It's a challenging thing to manage. But what do you think, Louise? Should we get into this episode and hear from Judy? Absolutely. All right, guys. Here we go. Let's hear from the one and only Judy Jetson. Judy Jetson, welcome to Artsville. Thank you. Glad to be here. So with a name like Judy Jetson, that's a very cool name. I'm guessing, you know, maybe you've had uh, people reference the cartoon and and maybe you've even been called Jedi Jetson. I, I don't know. <laughs> right, you are. <laughs> I just wish I had one of those little pink spaceships where I could fly over traffic jams these days. Exactly. So where's my flying car? We were promised exactly. flying cars. I feel like we got gypped. But Judy, I am so grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to come on to Artsville and talk about our, our our passion and love for not just Asheville and craft, but all of the amazing people, such as yourself, that help make uh, Asheville uh, Artsville, which is why we you know, named the podcast Artsville, because we want to celebrate and elevate the incredible artists, artisans, makers, craftspeople from Asheville and beyond. And you, my friend, are you know one of the key kind of innovators and I know you're really humble and you're probably going to you know talk me down from this hy- hyperbolic uh, you know kind of intro but 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 you are you have been this incredible leader and innovator in Asheville with local uh, fiber and tell me about local cloth tell me about the genesis and the inspiration for it happy to thanks for the opportunity i started local cloth about 12 years ago when I came up here to work at a job with a nonprofit called Handmade in America. And Handmade's job was to grow the craft economy. And I don't know where you were living in 2009 and 2010, but around here, the economy was shrinking rather than growing. And so I thought, how the heck am I going to grow this economy in the midst of a recession? when galleries are closing and artists are scraping two nickels together to go shopping. So anyhow, I started taking a look at what actually composed the craft economy in Western North Carolina. There had been a couple of studies done by Handmade. And the first thing I want to mention is that the size of the craft economy was more than $200 million a year. When you include all the visitors coming to buy craft or to have craft experiences, when you consider the makers, when you think about the hotel and food work that they did. So I looked at all these different segments. I thought, man, this is a tough job. And then I came to the last one, which was craft suppliers. And I noticed it wasn't a very big number. Now, I'm a spinner. And so I was already in the business of going around to farms and finding some fleece and seeing where I could find textiles in this area. And I said, you know, I bet we could grow that, that little number, because there are all sorts of invisible entities all around the region, whether you're talking about pottery, finding places for clay, whether you're talking about finding materials for jewelry, for metalsmithing. And I said, I think that number is an undercount. So let's focus on fiber because I'm a fiber artist for fun and an economic developer for a job. And I said, I bet if I married those two, we could make a difference. And I'm still convinced that we can, but here I am 12 years later and we're still working at it. So I think this might be the job of a lifetime, but it's actually a pleasure to be part of it rather than sitting on the side thinking, 
who's going to do something about this. Well, just the sheer growth of your membership, you know, indicates that you were clearly right and clearly onto something, that there's a need and a want and an unmet opportunity, unmet need that for, for people to rally around this cause. And, you know, so, so kudos. So, you know, one of the things that really, I think you have that so many artists need and, and probably some want is expertise in, in understanding about economic development to begin with, right? You know, a lot of times artists, they know their craft, they know their medium inside and out, but they don't have an appreciation maybe or an understanding of, of how to develop uh, a revenue stream around their artwork and craft. And, you know, because of your, your background in economic development in, in rural areas, you know, you were, I think, uniquely equipped and empowered to, to think about this art form in a, from an economic perspective. So talk a little bit about your journey as somebody who has focused on economic development and how that helped to inform your vision. Well, I started off, my very first job out of college was as an interviewer at the state employment office back in the days when we had public employment services to help people find jobs and help employers find people. So that matchmaking role is something that I sort of rolled into out of college and never left. In fact, I, I worked at a university down in Florida, University of South Florida, matching faculty who were interested in doing community development work with community groups that wanted to work with the university. And they used to call me their Yenta because that's just what I did. So economic developer is really sort of an in-between person. You know, you're working in between business and government to try to make things easier for business, helping government understand how the private sector works, what kind of programs can you mobilize to help people in the community. And I, I had sort of um, a wonderful opportunity come up. This was probably, I'm trying to remember the years. I worked for a national public interest group called the Council of State Governments. And it was our job to kind of do research on problems that were affecting lots of states. And we had a farm crisis hit that was really making a big impact in the Midwest and the South. And so I started a rural economic development program to help those regions and particularly help farmers as well as businesses that use farm products. We had conferences. We got new special funds created by the federal government. We did research about what was working. And the upshot of that was I ended up reaching out to the U.S. Small Business Administration to see if their new administrator would be willing to come speak at a conference of state officials because he was a former lieutenant governor from South Dakota. His name was Jim Abner. I then um, had a great chance to get to know Senator Abner. That's what we called him because he'd been a U.S. senator beforehand. We scheduled public hearings with small business people all around the United States. We did 10 different ones. And the whole issue of rural economic development was really under addressed, both in Washington and even in state capitals. So we began to build interest in that. And, and when I left, I said, well... I think I'm ready to be a practitioner. I'm ready to do it. So I ended up starting as a consultant for a lot of small towns and rural areas. And that eventually led me to Handmade in America in Asheville, which is was serving the entire region. So Handmade's mission was to try to create a regional effect. So all this time, while I'm doing economic development by day, 
I'm being a weaver at night or a dyer at night. I would come home from these trips. I'd put on something on Pandora, usually like drum music, something from Africa because it gets good rhythm. And I'd just sit there and weave all the stress away from what was going on. So this chance to, to create local cloth which we founded in um, 2012 officially, was like a dream come true because I could take what I'd learned about creating jobs and growing wealth in rural areas and combine it with my love of textiles. I I started with textiles for a couple of reasons. One is, as you said, because I understood the supply chain. But another reason is that at that time, textiles really weren't considered art. And a lot of craft wasn't considered art in the same way that it is today. There's, there's been a lot of progress over the last 10 years. We now have shows that are textile shows in some of the finest galleries in our region. And textile artists' work is featured in exhibitions of all different kind of craft and art that never was seen before. So it, we've really come a long way just in the last 10 years, I think, and creating appreciation for textiles. In our region, it's the second or third most frequently practiced craft, but it's probably the one where artists have the lowest revenue stream because it's very time-consuming to weave and spin and felt and all the kind of things we need to do to take raw materials into a form to create art. So that's one of the reasons that local class is really necessary. And we're beginning now to teach our artists how to be in shows. Thanks to Louise Glickman, we've got four artists scheduled in her show. And and this week, actually today, we have 12 artists who are putting an exhibit together at the Guild Fair of the Southern Helen Craft Guild. And this will be the first time we've been in a show like that. So we've really moved to a different phase of creating opportunities for people who are creating work at home and maybe for themselves, their families, selling a little bit on Etsy to move up to artists of some stature. So Judy, I mean, the crux of any kind of economic development dynamic, right, is this relationship between supply and demand, I'm guessing on some level, right? So, you know, it strikes me that one of the fundamental issues that any artist deals with is that the supply may outstrip demand or demand may not be as strong as we want or need it to be, right, to to create a, a living wage or create revenue and balance that dynamic between supply and demand. And so one of the th- wonderful things about the work you're doing is that clearly you've your membership alone demonstrates that you've struck a nerve and your mem- you know, and people are loving what you're doing, they want to support it and sign up. But talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about that 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 dynamic between supply and demand and how the work you're doing is helping to stoke demand for your product? Good question. You know, we were talking about this in the studio yesterday, that when we first started our retail shop, we needed a lot more materials. We needed more clothing. We needed different kind of garments. We needed more supply than we had available for shoppers. Because there's a lot of interest we discovered, you know, just like we discovered interest when we started Local Cloth, we expanded to add retail to the mix and saw a huge interest in that. So sometimes we have more stuff than we can sell, and sometimes we need a lot more artists in the shop. So it's 
it's something that I think will become just part of our everyday life. If, if you're an artist living in a rural area like Western North Carolina, part of your revenue is going to come from selling your products to visitors and part of it in galleries. But honestly, part of it comes from teaching classes or doing other kind of things with your skills than, than just producing. And one of the real pleasures of living in this region is we have several really good craft schools around here. And that attracts artists who want to be able to diversify their revenue stream from simply making to also teaching. We've got the John Campbell Folk School that is down in the very southwestern tip of the state. We have Penland School of Craft, which is north east of here, um, kind of due north. We also have Aramont School of Craft, which is within an hour and a half drive. So an artist and a textile artist in particular who wants to be able to support themselves with their work can have a lot of different revenue streams and local club provides that as well because we offer, I'd say, upwards of 60 different classes every year and pay artists a good wage to teach them. So we try to find all these different avenues and revenue streams in order to be able to help artists make a living. Well, and that's the empowerment part, right? I mean, part of what I love about what you guys are doing is, is you know, you've you've created this kind of end-to-end supply chain where, you know, oh, it maybe not initially at first, but over the years, you've created this end-to-end uh, kind of supply chain, vert- uh, vertical supply chain where you're growing and harvesting the, the the fiber, forgive me if I'm using the incorrect jargon, but but you're you're harvesting, right? Growing and harvesting. And then all the way through to not just production, but marketing and sales. But then you'd even take it further to not just giving people a fish, but teaching them how to fish through education and 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 that's the empowerment part, right? So kudos and and hats off because I wonder to what extent your model can be applied, you know, to other mediums and other art forms. I know, you know, your, your, your dear friend over at the Village Potters, they have a similar model, right, in terms of throwing clay. Yes, and there's very inspirational to us at Local Cloth. In fact, we went over, I took my whole board over to meet with them a couple of years ago, and Sarah in particular helped us see how their model worked, and then we came back to try to adapt it to our own organization. Their resident artist model, for, for instance, is something we'd really like to replicate, but it's hard in the amount of space we have right now. So we, we don't have the good fortune of being able to grow from a 5,000 square foot space to a 14,000 square foot space and where we are right now. But I think before too long, we'll probably be outgrowing where we're living right now. Maybe not moving because the River Arts District is such a great place for retail and Parking is terrific and the classes are doing well. But as we get involved in other projects over the next few years, I think we'd like to grow in similar ways to the way the village potters have. Mm-hmm. Well, what is not, you know, not to jump around, but you, you sort of touched on the future. I mean, what is your vision for the future? I mean, five, 10 years from now, you know, where do you, where do you want to be? Well, that's the challenge of leadership of a nonprofit organization, right? Is to predict the future. I only (laughs) had a crystal ball. Yeah. I would be all set. We've just started a project I want to tell you about a little bit, and it's called Blue Ridge Blankets. And our mission with this is to not just encourage the farmers, but actually buy their product Uh, and not just 
show them which mills are reliable in our region and our country, but work with the mills. And then finally get the yarn back, have it woven here into blankets, and then sell those at fine retailers all throughout the Appalachian region. So this is sort of a heart project. It's something that I call growing into our name. I want people to be able to walk in through the doors of local cloth and say, I want to buy some local cloth and it'll be 100% from our region. We're not there yet. It's been a struggle, frankly, to find enough farmers and enough fiber to do our first batch of yarn. And the blankets are gorgeous. We have samples that just came back. They're fabulous. The weavers were all students at local colleges. They did an excellent job. It was The yarn was dyed locally by some really talented natural dyers, but it's hard to find that much fiber. So our next step is to actually go out and beat the bushes a little bit, try to find these farmers that we know are out there and get them to sign up to be part of the project. We're fortunate to have just received a small grant from a group called Fibershed. It's a national organization that supports groups that are similar to ours. Most of them don't have nice teaching studios and retail shops. They're more grassrootsy. But, you know, 10 years from now, they may be like local cloth. Uh, so what am I going to be doing next after we start making and producing blankets? Well, I just came back from a trip to Florence, Alabama which most people have never heard of. It's across the river from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which you may have heard of. Um, because they still have a lot of recording studios there, but they were big back in the 80s and 90s. Anyhow, Florence um, has a local, a native daughter, as opposed to a native son who came back from New York, big design business, and set up shop in an industrial park there so that she could create jobs for local residents who are being laid off from textile mills. And she's done it by having them do lots of extraordinary handwork on garments that are now sold for a premium. So she's has a customer base that she's built over 20 years that she's supplying products to. So I, I talked with her and the people that work there and thought about local cloth and what we're trying to do. And I wondered, how could we take it to that level? And I'm convinced that what we need to do is start working more closely with designers in our region. You know, we have lots of small designers who are making clothing that's unique, that's sustainable, especially a lot of young designers who are very eco-friendly in their approach. And I want to start building an understanding of that group as a hub of designers in this part of the country. We're never going to be big enough to compete with the New York fashion designers, but we could do something. And we could do something with local fiber and local textiles that they don't have access to right now. So I kind of see that over the next five years. Once we get the blankets launched, I'm already kind of working on what's the next iteration of local cloth and how do, how do we go from here. This whole manufacturing business in the United States has changed dramatically. And that's also true with textiles. Sometimes the best use of an old textile mill is to be a business incubator. So how could we help make that happen? That's what I'm thinking about now. So, so much of your story resonates and it sort of bumps into a lot of aspects that I think are really quite powerful and interesting and germane for 
kind of today's marketplace because you know there is this kind of pushback against globalization for example i feel like certainly within certain socioeconomic kind of segments of the of the economy there is this allure if not demand for um handmade artisanal if you will uh, kinds of products whether they're food products or beauty care products or what have you we've seen the explosion of, of organic food obviously over the last 20 years and um and so your story and what you're doing you know sort of gets right into some of these kind of shall we say trends or needs or wants which is this idea for for a, a you know supporting local economies buying something that's not you know mass produced something that's handmade something that's maybe a little more unique or 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 has the the touch of a of a, of a human hand to it um you know and 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 as you as you tell your story as you grow as you think about all of these things it feels like you know certainly from a business perspective you have you mean you 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 know you sort of you're blessed to to be able to 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 talk about all these aspects and attributes of your products because yes they are locally sourced and yes they are handmade and yes they are not mass produced they have they're human made right honestly you know in a real way so i don't know i'm excited for you guys that you're able to to sort of you know beat that drum a bit and, and sort of stir up and, and the romanticize right the 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 allure of these handmade lo- locally sourced products could you talk a little bit about how you speak to that aspect and how you guys think about this really powerful truth which is that you know you you are creating you know you are supporting local economy you are creating locally sourced handmade products i mean that's a that's a very powerful uh, value proposition these days i think you said it as well or better than i could i do have i do tell that story every day that i'm working in the shop as people come in and Customers are mesmerized. You'd be amazed at how many people I've taken to see our display of the Blue Ridge blankets and have said, you know, have you ever felt wool, you know, pure wool, Shetland wool, feel this blanket. And then here's another one that we had made and added alpaca and mohair. Feel the difference. And we talk about what that is. It's shiny or bouncy or soft or there's all sorts of wonderful emotion that's drawn out from people actually reconnecting to fiber that's natural. I think we've all sort of become, we're over the plastic clothing and the plastic blankets and the plastic everything that kind of overtook our lives because of convenience. And now I think it's in general, we're really more wanting to connect with things that are heirloom quality products rather than wash and wear and then throw away a year later to get the latest fashion. People who are interested in buying things that are inexpensive and don't have to last very long are not going to be our customers. The glory and the joy of a niche enterprise like Local Cloth is that we can stand up and claim this is what we are. You know, we're here for people who want a product that's going to last for generations they want to connect to the maker they want to look the person in the eye that made their artwork or their garment and know who they are we have a a book in our store with pictures and bios of all the makers 
And often people come and ask to learn more about the person that made the dress they're buying or the blouse or even the farmer whose yarn they're purchasing. It's a brave new world here, I think, when you talk local. But we're taking a page from the local food movement. We have a very strong group in our region called uh, ASAP, Appalachian Sustainable Agriculture Project. And they've been going for, it's about 20, 30 years. I think it's almost 30 years now. It took them a long time before they could get grocery stores to put the picture of the farmer in the produce section. But we put the pictures of the farmers and their stories in our our maker space where you can buy yarn and fiber for spinning. And we do the same thing in the retail shop. But people want to make those connections. And that's what sells the, the items. It's easy if they can connect to the artist or the farmer. Yeah, I mean, that that gets to the the authenticity and integrity question, right? Like, I mean, you know, we're all, so many people, I think, are clamoring for a sense of truth in their lives, integrity, authenticity, and we've lost faith, you know, in so so many things, it seems, whether it's leaders or, or governments or God knows what, this isn't a political show, we won't get into that. But the point is, is that you can believe in uh, in a farmer, right, to, to, to grow something with with love and you can you can trust an artist to you know to take uh, raw materials and use their hands you know and make it with love and so what you guys are doing just sort of oozes that that sense of character and integrity and authenticity well scott i have to tell you that we probably would be doing this differently if i wasn't the person who was leading the charge but i love working with farmers there is nothing that makes me happier than to go out to a farm where they're raising fiber animals and walk around, see the animals, touch their fleece, and the farmers themselves, so straightforward, down to earth, you know, not a lot of pretense. They're a total treat to work with. So that's why we keep pushing, pushing to get more farmers involved in what we're doing because they're making a huge difference. A lot of the people that raise fiber animals are not doing it. The fiber analysts put it this way. The fiber animals don't support the farm. What they try to do is sell the fleece for enough to support the animals and keep it going. So it's a labor of love for farmers to raise sheep and angora goats and alpacas. It's not the same kind of profit motivation that larger, more corporate farms are doing. This is about having a love for the animals and it comes through when you're on the farm. You know, I'm remembering a few times over the years where my wife has talked about, uh, you know, she'd gone to an event or gone, or maybe we, we attended a dinner or attended a party and um, she showed up only to find out that one of her friends or one of the other ladies there was wearing the same dress or the same garment or the same shoes or whatever the case might be. Right. And what I, part of what I, I, I love about your story is like, like the chances of, 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 if, if someone buys one of your garments, the chances of them running into another person wearing that exact same garment is virtually zero. Uh, it's a very interesting sales pitch. <laughs> you know, this is, this is so unique. This is out of a kind. You don't have to worry about running into somebody that's wearing the same thing. I, I just love it. I just love it. And it's a powerful thing, the sense of that, that I have something unique and special. Yeah. And I also, I love, getting dressed in the morning and saying, who am I going to wear today? Mm. Am I going to wear something 
from this farm, something that I spun, something that a good friend of mine made. I mean, it's it's a treat to walk into the closet and have those kind of have your friends surrounding you. Right. Well, the word the word that came to mind uh, also is rare. You know, it's like that word. It's like you know, I think people we talk about authenticity and sort of being unique and. And but but this idea that 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 these are rare items, people seek rare, rare items and want to pay a premium for that. And that's I mean, I think that's also right. The, the 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 pricing strategy for your products must be something that you wring your hands a lot about, because, of course, you want a price to sell. But at the same time, you got to cover your costs. Your costs are high because you're not achieving the quantity, you know, because because these are it's a small business it's local handmade stuff. So you're not going to have that kind of scale. So, you know, hopefully you're talking to people, right, that are, and I'm guessing you are, right, talking to people that that understand that, appreciate that are going to pay a p- bit of a premium for that rare item. So talk a little bit about how you think about pricing and, and some of the challenges that you face when it, when it comes to understanding, you know, what, what the market can bear. That is a challenge that we face every time a new group of, art, a new group of products come into the store. Artists who are textile artists tend to undervalue their time. And if anything, I don't think we've ever told someone to ask less for their work, but we often have to talk to the artists about demanding a higher price because we know the amount of time that was involved in making the work. And artists are typically not the type that will go out and look and see what other people are charging for similar products. They just think about how can I charge little enough to make sure this sells. And so that's a continuing process of education for us at Local Cloth. The other issue about pricing, though, that's kind of interesting, is getting artists to purchase local yarn. Because local yarn is a lot, lot, lot more expensive than yarn that's imported from China. And a weaver in particular, let's say that's weaving cloth for garments, is thinking about how to keep their input costs low, again, so that they can be more competitive in the marketplace when they go to sell their work. Uh, so we've had to work with farmers to get them to ask enough, but not too much for their yarn so that we can get the local fiber artists to use it. And we had a mill here. It's called Echo View Mill that is sadly just closed. But we had an event out there, oh, maybe five years ago. We called it Speed Dating for Farmers and Artists. And we had farmers come and bring examples of their products. And we had artists come and bring examples of what they make. And then we had a mix and match at tables. We, they would meet for like 15 minutes with one group and then we mix them up and move them to another. And we hosted at the mill partly because the mill wanted to know what they needed to do in order to produce yarn that local artists would buy. So there's more people in the equation than just the farmers and the artists, but we think those are the two most important actors. What a cool idea. I love the speed dating for artists and farmers. That's fantastic. It was fun too. A lot of people came. Yeah, I'm sad. I'm just sad. I'm not even a farmer or an artist, but I would I would like to go just to learn. I mean, what a cool educational kind of moment. But I mean, that's what it takes, right? I mean, I remember, you know, I could, well, it's not about me, but I just remember projects over the years I've been involved in that, you know, if you don't sit down with the manufacturer, for example, you may not understand how to create 
something that they can actually make, right? You know, because there is that push pull that give take. And, you know, I think a lot of times we, we just need to have, right, a, a, an understanding, right, of each person's needs and constraints and, 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 you know, to optimize, right, the final product. And I just love that sort of educational aspect, such a unique, uh, fun thing to do. So I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, SoCo. Does that ring a bell? SoCo? Oh, absolutely. We love SoCo. So I understand, though, that EchoView and Julie Jensen, um, I guess they just shut down. What, what, what's the story there? What, what, what's going on? Well, what they told me is that during the pandemic, there was this increased demand for yarn. That because people were staying home and they weren't going out and they were making things, it's sort of self-soothing to knit in the evening. I don't know if you've ever tried it, Scott, but you know once you get the hang of it, it's really a, a nice way to unwind and relax and also make something beautiful for yourself or your family members. So Echo View was able to grow its own distribution network and begin supplying yarn all over the country to yarn shops as well as selling direct through their website, which a lot of companies are are doing now. And when that time of isolation ended, demand for their yarn went down, it tanked. And so they were faced with with the challenge of, do we kind of retool ourselves? Do we refocus our company? Or do we say, we had a good run and let's move on? And we also saw that happen with another sort of boutique mill down in Hendersonville, which is in our region, that started up to make custom cloth and then found the demand had, had reduced. So the people who are in the larger manufacturing businesses are still having a struggle with the economy the way it is. Soho, on the other hand, is an example of a young artist who moved here out of graduate school. She went to graduate school in Chicago area and her field was textiles. And so she made all kind of wild art, but her day job was to design garments. And actually she ran a cut and sew business out of one of these mills for about five, six years and developed a reputation. She found a New York designer to work with her. And they now moved into the River Arts District just about three blocks from local cloth. And we're working together. She was like the first designer I went to visit when I came back from Florence, Alabama, to say, what can we do to help you? How can local cloth support people like you so that more can grow in this region? And so Libby O'Brien, who's the owner of SoCo, and I are going to work together to try to build that cluster and make it happen. But it's it's hard. It's really sad to see some of your colleagues um, choosing to to leave the industry because you want everyone to succeed when you do this kind of work. But it also doesn't happen that way. So what do you? I mean, obviously, you you number one, right? You just have empathy and compassion for you know these colleagues and friends. But then from a just kind of purely kind of rational business perspective, sort of like, what do you as a as a leader, as a as a business owner, um, if you will, like, what do you learn from that? What do you take away? What are your lessons from this kind of tragic kind of, you know, reality? I took away a lot of fleas. <laughs> right. 
Sure. I went, I went by the mill to see if they had things to sell that they wanted to get rid of and was happy to be gifted some of their fiber as well as uh, we were able to purchase some things. So that's a little bit taking advantage of somebody's bad experience, but we got, we helped them get the word out that they were trying to sell equipment and we're able to do that too. I guess my takeaway is that this is not a static industry. This is not, even though the techniques that we use to create yarn and felt and fabric have been around for generations, that the nature of the business is constantly changing and that you just have to have the next alternative already in your mind so that you're ready when that happens. You have to be nimble. Yeah, well, nimble is key. Nimble is key. You you, you don't want to, my my view, right, when it comes to business and entrepreneurship, to the extent you can, you want to always retain your ability to pivot. And as soon as you can't pivot, you get stuck and it's hard. And, you know, I remember a mentor of mine years ago telling, talk to me about business and he was saying that growing too fast can kill you just as, just as, as, as much as growing too slowly. You know, that was his view uh, at the time. And maybe that's still true. Maybe it's not. But but it strikes me that the story is is kind of reminiscent of that. It's like, oh, there was this explosion of, of, of demand, you know, and obviously it was exciting. And then when when that went away, it was like, oh, boy, we, we sort of, you know, scaled up. We real not realizing that, you know, the retraction could be could be damaging, you know, but. But it's but this is the nature of business and this is the nature of the crazy world we've been in the last three years. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, sort of been unprecedented what what we've all gone through. And and so I'm grateful that that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you guys are still around and uh, and, you know, trying to make, as I like to say, lemonade out of lemons, Um, you know, and I also like to suggest adding vodka. Um, but that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I'm a tequila fan myself. Oh yeah, well, me, me too. Actually, me too. Um, but I don't know if I, have I ever added tequila to lemonade. Have you ever added tequila to lemonade? Is that good? Should we? Oh well, I well, guess I, uh, blanco. I, I guess great grapefruit. Great grapefruit tequila is a good combo. Ah yes, a little uh, Paloma maybe, huh? Paloma style. Uh, yes, exactly. exactly All right. right. We're, we're, we've turned this into a whole nother podcast. Um, <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you what, you have, you know, samples of these beautiful blankets and talking about earlier, the blankets. And then, you know, I'm just curious, what do you have in mind to scale up production and, and to market those nationally and internationally? And, you know, taking into account what we just said, right, like trying to grow in a really thoughtful way as to not, you know, shoot yourself in the foot, so to speak. But you know, as you think about the blankets and where they can go, what's your what are some of your your ideas and, and visions? Well, we know that we're walking into um, deep waters here as we try to get into the manufacturing and marketing of blankets. But we're a five hundred one c three nonprofit, which means that we can apply for and get grants, and that groups can get a tax donation or a tax deduction from donating to our projects. And so this is, at its essence, an educational project, and we need to keep it in that vein. Using students to weave blankets is a perfect example of how that happens. We also have an advantage over a private business in that we can get a grant to help underwrite it. And that's what we did in order to start this project. We received a grant from the 
Western North Carolina Community Foundation. And they invested in this because of two things. They're interested in doing things that will support farmers and agriculture in our region. And they're also interested in helping nonprofits develop a sustainable revenue stream so that they'll continue into the future. So what that means is we're using um, grant money to create the sample blankets and to do research and experiment. We have a second batch of blankets in the works. So wool is already at two different mills. Uh, One mill that's in Vermont that spins a woolen style yarn that's very soft and lofty. They use the same equipment that a very old mill located in Asheville used to use, and it's still in there. It's called a mule spinner. And these are the only two places in the country that we know of that use mule spinners. And I won't go into the details of it, but the fact is we're experimenting with what kind of mill will make the kind of yarn that our customers will want that will make a satisfactory blanket. But we're doing that all with money invested by the Community Foundation. So once we get the next batch of blankets back, then we'll begin to sell those and hopefully find a market for this product. Between now and then, though, we've decided to take our blankets on the road. We're doing like shows in various locations. We have a show this week that's going to be at the Southern Highland Craft Guild Fair. We have a show next week that's going to be at the Southeast Animal Fiber Fair. And then in February, they're going to be on display at the Grovewood Gallery, which is one of the top craft galleries in the United States. Um, and I'm looking for other places to show them so that we can begin to build interest in the product before we actually have it available for sale. That's our strategy to sell a, a larger. We have 19 samples. Once we get the next run of blankets done, we'll have probably 50 or 60 blankets to be sold. Hopefully we can grow that incrementally by reinvesting money that we get from selling the blankets into buying more product and having it spun into yarn and woven into a cloth. Mm-hmm. You know, Judy, I'm remembering that, uh, and I, I think they still do it, but Apple computers, right, for, for, for years, if not still, they always had uh, on their products, you know, made in California, or it's a designed in California. They always linked back to California. And part of the reason why they did that, I think they still do it, but was because California had, you know, this cachet, right? When it came to tech, when it came to style, when it came to culture, California had a lot of currency around the world. And this, and they wanted to play into that, right? And I think that there are other brands and other, you know, examples, right? Whether it's whiskey from uh, Ireland or uh, Hudson Bay blankets from Hudson Bay, you know, this idea that your products are made in Asheville, right? I wonder to what extent that uh, story, right? You know, can can help you guys and help tell, you know, help market and promote your products because. Uh, if people know more, and I think, you know, obviously there's, you know, Asheville's a world-class city when it comes to craft and, and, you know, many, many people already know that, but there are many, many people who don't, you know, and the idea that you could tell that part of the story sounds really exciting. Do you talk about Asheville specifically in the marketing and promotion of your product? Well, we're just getting started on that. So thank you for that great suggestion. Bill's <laughs> hey, you know, in the mail. <laughs> Asheville's got the cachet these days, that's for sure. That's right. Well, so, you know, we did a podcast 
a while back with uh, Todd Anders and Sherry Masters about the Grovewood Village weaving of cloth and the importance of Edith Vanderbilt, uh, Charlotte Vance, you know, to, to make, you know, Asheville an important textile center. You know, it began with teaching and economic development for Appalachian women. Do you see the, the vision for local cloth, you know, in a similar way? Can, can the textile industry in North Carolina be rebuilt, repurposed, and replicated? Well, I certainly consider those women our godmothers in this work. Um, we have lots of them in this region. I don't usually use the phrase rebuilt or the, the industry because I think it's going to have to be different. You know, it's we're really looking at a huge collection of micro businesses rather than growing an industry again. I think we need some new language when we, we talk about that. I've talked to a couple of designers at our shop the last couple of days, how they could scale up to make more product to meet the demand. Several several of them have told me their shows are just selling out this year and they can't keep up. And they say, well, you know, I tried hiring a helper once and it didn't work out. So that makes me think we need to dive deeper into that question is how could we build a network? It might be a network rather than industry. Of, of designers and makers that are all connected to each other and help balance that supply and demand dilemma that we talked about earlier in this podcast. I don't know the answer to it, but I love researching the question. Yeah. Well, this idea, the idea of re-energizing, right? I mean, it, you know, and I, and yeah, I let's say re-energize. Yeah, yeah, that's the word. Re- reanimate, re-energize. I mean, you know, because you're absolutely right. There is no going back. I mean, it's, you know, times have changed. Things are different. So how do you bring the best parts forward, right? Which, you know, one of the best parts is, of course, the 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 legacy, right? And the heritage, you know, there's such a heritage. And how do you bring those, those, those parts forward to help legitimize and create a halo effect for the new artists and the new manufacturers and the new uh, growers and... Because you you have um, you know the old saying about standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. I mean, you know, my my goodness, you know, you, <laughs> you guys have such a rich heritage. It's a it's a powerful story. Well, I tell you what, this has just been such a wonderful conversation, Judy. I'm so grateful that you took time to come and and sit down with us here at at Artsville. For our listeners, tell our listeners what you love most about Asheville, just as a, as a human being, why, why people should come to Asheville, what you love about living there and being there. I totally love the people. This area is so full of can-do people uh, compared to any other place in the country I've ever lived. You know, some people would go to a small town and say, oh, this is sad. It only has one restaurant, a couple of stores. In this region, people say, tell me what to do and I'll do it. How can we beautify our town? How can we create a more welcoming aspect for our visitors? They'll try anything. And that is just very energizing to me because I'm sort of that way myself. I guess I belong here. Just took me a while to find a place. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, Scott, and I don't know. Please, let's go. I got, I'm I'm all ears. Well, I want to talk a little bit about besides my economic development background, how I got to do what I'm doing, how I fell in love with textiles. I I would love to hear how you fell in love with textiles. (laughs) Okay, because I didn't study this in college. What? Um, No, 
I studied communication. And so I come at this from a very different perspective. I learned to uh, knit when I was a little girl, probably about five years old, with my grandmother. She taught me. And that's a story that I hear repeated by other people in the textile world. We start young and we fall in love with different aspects of it as we get older. I learned how to dye, for instance, when I was in high school. You know, tie-dye was big back in the 60s. And so I learned how to tie-dye. And then I thought, well, what else could I do with blank fabric? And I remember one time my boyfriend was in the Navy and they had their Navy numbers stenciled under their sheets. Well, I stole one of his sheets and I dyed it to be like this huge sunset color so that when he went back to, to the ship, he had this crazy sheet in his duffel bag. But I, I mean, I learned to play, you know, I learned to do textiles with people I loved. And one time my sister was at the department store, I remember, in the town where we grew up, and she was wearing a hand-knitted cap. And the buyer asked her, where did you get that cap? It's really nice. We'd like to carry them. And she's like, I made it. And the buyer says, well, do you think you could make a few dozen more for us? We'd like to sell them at Christmas time. And so Sue came home and she had an order for like 10 dozen knitted hats, 120 hats. So every night for months, we all sat around knitting like maniacs so that Sue could fulfill that order. So I sort of learned young about a lot of those different parts of it. And then once I left college, I learned how to weave at a place in Lawrence, Kansas called the Yarn Barn. And they're still in business and there's a lot of other weavers that learned from the same place and buy their products there. So I wow, had to shout out Yarn Barn. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was really it was great. So I just explored all those things while I was working in an economic development by day. I would save at least one or two weeks a year to go to a craft school and learn a new craft or be able to immerse myself for a week and looms and yarn and sometimes I did silk painting I mean I tried everything just because that let the creative side come out so it's it's been such a gift for me to be able to take that rural economic development piece and marry it to my love of all things textiles I, there's nothing else I'd rather do well and that is such a powerful story and 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 kind of insight really because it you know it is part of the solution to bringing back you know small town america right i mean for for so many towns that have maybe felt the the worst of globalization from the out, uh, offshoring of jobs or manufacturing or what have you i mean change is inevitable for good bad and different you know but so how do we how do you bring back that economic development and this idea that thinking about what is unique about that area, right, in terms of what the people grow or, or make? You know, I, I don't know. It's just an important way to, for, for folks, I think, to, to think about how art and creativity can help re-energize their economy. Yeah, it's been fun to watch farmers learn how to dye their own yarn and their own mm. fiber because mm. most of them are more in a production mode. But by bringing the two groups together through our dye studio, we've seen all sorts of new skills and interests blossom in the farmers. You know, they'll say, Judy, 
I'm thinking maybe I had to try weaving on a rigid heddle loom. What do you think? And I can say, yeah, we've got a class in that in November. Why don't you sign up and see if you like it? And all of that creativity that they may not have had a time to express because they were so busy raising children and raising baby animals can find a new outlet for farmers. And that's a great thing to see. Talk about, even because even if you can make product that is high quality, handmade, high quality, you know, locally sourced, and the challenge becomes marketing, selling, distribution, you know, how you, how do you connect, right, with the demand side? You know, platforms like Etsy have been in some ways, you know, very empowering, democratizing for artists, uh, local or small makers or artisans to, you know, get their products out to the world. But of course, you know, Etsy has its limitations as well. And I know there've been some frustrating um, changes uh, there. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what platforms like Etsy um, do for you, if, if anything, and what some of the challenges have been? Platforms like Etsy are better for some types of craft than others. I think a jewelry maker, for instance, who makes multiples of the same product can be very successful using something like Etsy. For textiles, it's not so easy because people want to feel the product. You can sell yarn on Etsy a lot more readily than you could sell a needle-felted version of your dog, for instance, or a dress, or a blanket even. I think for the most part, blankets need to be touched and felt. And that would be true with a lot of textile products. Ultimately, we all have to figure out a way to make the internet an integral part of our marketing strategy. But I see more using the internet to tell the story and then going to retail shops in places that are more like a, a rural resort throughout the mountain area and the Appalachians. And the customers that would come to those places, I think, would want to take a keepsake type item home with them at the end of their vacation. And I think that's where our market for these blankets will be. But who knows? It may walk right in the door in Asheville, which is also a rural retreat center. Uh, so they can buy the blankets in our store. They hopefully can buy them in other fine stores around the region and maybe ultimately on the Internet. But from my perspective, that's a smaller part of our marketing strategy than is having them available for people to actually experience. Judy, as we wrap up today, would you just take a couple of minutes and talk about the show that you have upcoming with uh, Artsville and uh, the work that you're curating for Louise? I'd love to. We're very excited to be able to, to have this partnership with Louise and Artsville. We admire the work that she's doing in bringing artists into the forefront in our region that would otherwise you know, be sort of flagging behind. It's, and she's also doing a lot to help educate some of our artists about what it's like to have a show in a gallery. So we appreciate that. We found a really nice assortment of work that represents the kind of thing people will see in our shop if they come further down the road in the River Arts District to Local Cloth. We have Joanna White featured, who's a, a silk painter. She she paints with textile paints on silk fabric and 
makes garments from them, scarves. She's very experienced. She's been doing this work and is a member of the, the Piedmont Artist Guild, the Southern Highland Craft Guild. Uh, she's Her work is very desirable. And she'll be having things that are loose and flowing that people can try on and give us as wonderful Christmas gifts. Um, then we have Eileen Searcy, who also works on silk, but she's a silk painter, and her items are more wall pieces, like a small quilted type item. And Eileen is new to our region, but she's been doing this work for a number of years and is very talented, and her work's dramatic and interesting. And then we have Joan Berner, who is a felt artist. Actually, Joan has done it all. When I first met her, she was a spinner and she was dyeing yarn or, and wool for spinners. And she had her own business doing that. She went back to school, got a degree in textiles, and is now making one-of-a-kind felted garments. Many of them are silk and wool that are jackets and skirts and vests. And Joan's work is glorious. And the colors, the colors in all of these are going to knock your socks off. Then the fourth artist is... Uh-oh, Pam Granger-Gale, Pam Granger-Gale. And Pam is doing marbling on all kinds of different fabrics and then using that to make everything from books to barstools. We could call her books to barstools, Louise. What do you think? <laughs> she likes it. Um, Pam is a, a master of mixing colors in ways that they're kind of mesmerizing. Because when they do this marbling, it's not just little balls of marble, but it looks like those old-fashioned book covers that are on paper and they're paisley and there's all sorts of things flowing around. You have to see it to believe it, but it's definitely unique and one-of-a-kind, every single one of these women. Well, I'll tell you what, another unique one-of-a-kind woman is Judy Jetson. And I'll tell you what, we are so grateful, Judy, for you, for you coming on the show today and sharing your story and sharing all the great work that you're doing, important work that you're doing, because it's not just about creating beautiful objects and things for for to you know for 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 people to buy but it, it's about empowering artists to 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 make a living and 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 give back to their community and support economic development of that community and this is as they say god's work <laughs> and uh judy you are on the front lines and i am uh i'm so grateful for your time thank you so much for coming on artsville will you will you come back uh, later and uh and charm us again with uh with your stories I'd love to. I'll come back once we've got our blankets all finished and we can look and show and tell those. Well, I want to be your first customer. So count me in for uh, for blanket number one. Uh, okay. Thanks, yeah. guys. And I, I want one before Louise gets one. I'm just telling you. <laughs> she's muted right now, so she can't. She's, she's so mad at me, but I, I just... I just <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hear about it later, but uh, I'm going to hold you to it, Judy. <laughs> okay. All right, my friend. Great, uh, great time together. You have a beautiful day and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk soon and have a great show at Artsville. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes.
Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers.